God, we earnestly uh, pray that you would help us to be attentive to your word, to your will, to your heart, to your way, to the goodness that you impart and you desire to impart. You can do anything you want. Our minds, our hearts, our lives are all over the place. Help us to be centered in you. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart and mind. If my words should stray or deviate in any way, be inconsistent in any way with your word, may they not even be heard, be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. And now listen closely as I read some of the many misunderstood words of Jesus. Familiar words of Jesus, but maybe some of his least understood words. Reading from the Gospel of Matthew, continuing chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Listen closely. This is the word of God. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This is the beginning of Jesus' teaching. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And up until now, the Gospel of Matthew has been mainly introduction. Jesus has given only six tantalizingly isolated remarks to four different parties. And now comes the meat Now comes the substance, and so begins Jesus' best-known body or collection of teachings known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this first section has been known as the Beatitudes, nine mostly beloved statements that have in part or in whole appeared on bookmarks, on refrigerator magnets, on wall hangings made by your great aunt, and in some cases on cross-stitched throw pillows on your couch. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Some of you may have memorized these verses at some point in the course of your life. We know them fairly well, and yet do we? If you were like me growing up, you have understood these more as commands than declarations, albeit indirect commands. Many of us have heard Jesus saying in these words, if you are merciful, if you are pure in heart, if you are a peacemaker, then you will receive. If and then. If you do this, then you will get this, which is a transactional relationship which is not exactly how God works. It is a transactional relationship or what we've heard in the news over the last months as quid pro quo. If you do something, you'll get something. 
And that might fit the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in some ways, in which he commands his students, his apprentices, his followers to live in such a way, to follow in his steps, to have a particular worldview, to trust in the Father, to practice the disciplines of giving, prayer, fasting, to not judge or lust or divorce. But here in these verses, at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's actually doing something completely different. The so-called Beatitudes are not attitudes that we are supposed to have or to hold or to do or to embody in order to be blessed. They are not commands. Say that with me. They are not imperatives. Rather, they are declarations. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And the word blessed in Greek is makarioi, which means blessed, happy, fortunate, having God's favor, being in a good place in this life. In a good place are the poor in spirit. Fortunate are the poor in spirit. It seems Matthew spiritualizes or maybe over-spiritualizes. And so we go right along with him. What Jesus really meant, though, as Luke says in his gospel more simply and bluntly, are blessed are the poor, the simply poor, those without resources, those without enough, those without privilege, those without access, those in abject poverty who did not choose that and do not choose that. There was a period in church history, and there's still pockets of this thinking today in the church and in Christianity, in which it is believed that God's will for oneself is to choose material poverty or to make a vow of poverty. But that was not at all what Luke understood Jesus to be saying or even what Matthew understood Jesus to be saying. Matthew chooses and uses the strongest possible word available to him in the Greek language for poor. Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. Matthew's writing in Greek. He chooses the strongest possible of a variety of words for poor, the strongest one that is available to him, a word tokos, which the Greek lexicons define as reduced to beggary. Begging, asking for alms, destitute of wealth, influence, position, and honor. Helpless, powerless, poor, needy. And Jesus certainly had in mind the very familiar Hebrew word, anawim, which referred to those who were poor and who felt crushed by that poverty. It was not simply that they didn't have money or things but that they felt the burden of having nothing and being crushed and oppressed in that. In the words of one commentator, Luke has Jesus talking about the really poor, and Matthew has Jesus talking about the psychologically poor. Two different sides of poverty, both true. 
A trip back through church history here is interesting, though, because the early church and the medieval church tended to interpret Jesus' words, poor in spirit, here, which occur together like this nowhere else in the Scriptures, as humble, as virtuous, as something or a condition or a state or an attitude to be admired. How many of us have thought poor in spirit means humble? Yeah, we've heard that. We've heard that line of thinking. As if it's something to be looked up to. And if and as we do that same thing and interpret the same way and make that same mistake or choose a similar interpretation, we are or we become the people that missiologist Daryl Guder describes in, in quoting an even greater missiologist, a South African named David Bosch. Through the ages, Christians have usually found ways around the clear meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. We can thus read the history of Christian theology as the story of our various ways of reducing the gospel, especially in its particularity and specificity, to make it more compatible to our world and palatable to ourselves. Are you with me? And so something else and maybe something much more straightforward is going on here. Truly, if we look at just the four, first four of the Beatitudes, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and his teaching ministry, we hear him talking about people in misery. And there is no way around that. People who were poor in spirit, in other words, broken or crushed in spirit because of and in their poverty. People who mourned, who were grieving, who were broken in their hearts. People who were meek or who, in other words, people who were weak, who were little, who had no claim to anything. People who longed for justice probably because they had not experienced it. One commentator describes these people collectively as victims. In the truest sense of the word, not, as in, not in the way that it's often used today in our language. People who are at the bottom of every single ladder, social, economic, financial, racial, educational, mental, physical, psychological, spiritual. And Jesus has the audacity to say, blessed are you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, in other words, the anawim, those in abject poverty and those who have been crushed by such or because of such, because, and here it comes, theirs is the kingdom of heaven or theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed they are because theirs is the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, the reader, the listener, the one who has ears to hear, realizes that there's something unexpected and even startling going on here that can only be called a great reversal or the upside-down kingdom. The grammatical construction of Jesus' words here in the Greek are clear, that the emphasis is on the reality that the kingdom is for them, and even that the kingdom is of them in the genitive tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In addition, the tense of the verb here is present, not future, but present. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven today, right now, here and now, because, as Jesus has said earlier, the kingdom of heaven has already come near. 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not in another world to come, but today, here and now, because the king has come, and the king is present, and the king is accessible, and he has made the kingdom and his reign and his rule accessible even to those who had access to nothing before. And so, building on Jesus' earlier announcement that the kingdom of heaven has come near, now Jesus declares in no uncertain terms who this kingdom is for. It was specifically for the poor and the hurting and the lost and the oppressed and the misled and the confused and the down and out and the left behind and the underprivileged and the under-resourced. It was and it is, Jesus said, for the least expected, those who had previously been ignored or who thought they had been overlooked, for the, got, for, the got, for the forgotten and the people in the shadows. One might have thought that the kingdom was and is for the strong and the powerful and the well-connected and the highly educated. And it may have been for them too. And it may be. But it is first of all here specifically, intentionally, clearly, and certainly for those on the margins in particular. And this is first of all a proclamation of God's grace in the loudest way. And this is where the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, begins not with what a person must do, has to do, should do, but with God coming to the undeserving and to those who have no leg to stand on before him, to those who have no merit and who have earned nothing and who know it. The kingdom of God is not what a person has to do, and not, a, not for the person who has something that they must do, but it is for the undeserving and those who have no leg to stand on before God, those who have no merit and ha, who have earned nothing and who, ha, and who know that. And saying, my kingdom, my reign, my rule, my life, my love, my way is for you. Not because of anything you have done, earned, merited, obtained on your own. Or anything that anyone can do, earn, merit, obtain on their own. But simply because God says that's who and how I am. This is who and how God is. His kingdom and his rule and his reign begin with grace. It's not what anyone would expect, not what I would expect, certainly not what religious people would expect. And it totally flips the world and therefore also our lives on their heads in the best possible way. Unless you are one of the smug or self-righteous. Unless you are one of the self-sufficient or the independently wealthy or you still think that you are a self-made person, then you may be in trouble. Then we may be in trouble. Or at least we should pay attention. There's an interesting thing going on in the Beatitudes here. 
Jesus talks about all of these different kinds of people. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are. But he doesn't really say you. He says blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. Until he gets to the final. Blessed are you. And then he's clearly talking to those who are listening to him, to his disciples. Blessed are you when you are persecuted because of me. But all of the first eight Beatitudes talk about others. Are you with me? He's not so much talking to the church as he is talking to and about the world. It's only later that he brings us in, saying, blessed are you when you are persecuted in my name. But he's looking at and thinking about those even beyond the edges of his disciples. Those who have had no standing, even in the disciples' eyes. Those who weren't considered worthy to be included in God's kingdom. And then finally, at the end, we see his love is for all people. All people. Even the least expected and unexpected. Rachel Held Evans wrote, and I I ran across this uh, last week and thought, she kind of hits the nail on the head. The kingdom of God, Jesus taught, is right here, present yet hidden, imminent yet transcendent. It It is at hand among us and beyond us, now and not yet. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, belongs to the poor, the meek, the peacemakers, the merciful, and those who hunger and thirst for God. It advances not through power and might, but through missions of mercy, kindness, and humility. In this kingdom, many who are last will be first, and many who are first will be last. The rich don't usually get it, Jesus said. But children always do. This is a king, kingdom whose Savior arrives not on a war horse, but on a donkey, not through triumph and conquest, but through death and resurrection. This kingdom is the only kingdom that will last. And so Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of his teaching, the great Sermon on the Mount, fulfilling what he said and sort of opening the door for it and helping us to understand it is for the poor in spirit, for the meek, for the brokenhearted, for those on the edges, for them also and for them first. It's for the people in our midst who may be like us and maybe we are, the people who got hooked on fentanyl accidentally and then went down a terrible path. The kingdom is for the Silicon Valley CEO of a wonderful startup who struggled under the pressure and began to embezzle money and then was caught and prosecuted. The kingdom of God is for the people who live in the other parts of town and on the other side of the tracks. The kingdom of God is for a young man I met recently whose parents both died when he was young and things never seemed to come together for him and so he became an alcoholic and picked up a DUI a couple of weeks ago. The kingdom of God is for the woman who just never thought her parents loved her and she could never be good enough and never was good enough, and so she sold herself to the cheapest bidder who would give her what she perceived to be love. The kingdom is available, and it is for everyone, 
and especially the brokenhearted. It's for us too. But it's so much bigger than us and it's so much bigger than the church and it's so much grander than anything we will imagine. And it is upside down by our world standards. It is upside down by our ethos of quid pro quo. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't deserve it. You won't. You can only receive it. By God's grace, may we continue to receive it, experience it, and live in it. And have our eyes on others toward and for the same. Let's pray. Open our eyes to your kingdom in our midst, Father, Son, and Spirit. Reign, rule, have dominion, bring about your kingdom. For the meek and the peacemakers and the brokenhearted and the hungry, For those who don't know you, for those who do know you, for those who are confused about you. Help us to see, experience, be awakened to, and enjoy both your kingdom and you, our King. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen.